Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his, his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the co entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words go into my brain and run around for hours and days, weeks and years, causing me to feel anxious, have panic attacks, and seek out thousands of dollars of therapy just to get over the insecurities caused by a few sentences back in fourth grade. And so if you're going to, if you're thinking about saying something mean to me, please just use sticks and stones. It would be preferential to the words. We all know that words matter. Our words are important. And today's text is teaching us that your words are actually more powerful than what you realize. Your words are more powerful than what you realize. Last week, our brother John, and the brother of Christ, the literal brother, our, our uh, figurative brother in Christ, the literal half-brother of Christ, taught us about the power of actions and how faith without works is dead. James, what did I say? John? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Teachers will be judged with, heart, with greater strictness. So sometimes I might need your help, okay? Don't let me be judged. If I say something wrong, just shout it out, okay? Our, our brother James, he taught us that faith without works is dead. And this week he's teaching us not about the power of what we do, but the power of what we say. Your words, they, they matter. They really do. They make a difference, and they have the potential for great good or great evil. So let's just dive right in. We're going to look at three different points. One, the power of words. Second, why words are so powerful. And third, how you can train your tongue, because James tells us you cannot tame your tongue. So how you can train your tongue. First, words are powerful. I want you to just take a moment to think about this. Simple fact that words are the source of 
great good and great evil. When you think back in your life about the best things that have happened in life and the worst things that you've experienced in life, they almost always come down to something that somebody said to you. When you look at the Scriptures, the Scriptures are full of different sins, different ways that we can sin against God and direction for how that we live our life. But what you need to think about right now is how many of those sins are tied to your tongue? How many of those sins are tied to your tongue? Think about it. The, the Scripture talks about lying, deception, manipulation, slander, gossip, perjury, flattery, grumbling. The tongue is capable of great evil, but the tongue is also capable of great good. With your tongue, you may hear the kind words of a dear friend, the motivating words of an influential leader, the comforting words of a kind parent, or the convicting words of a faithful discipler. Words are powerful. And that's why James, he starts by saying that those who teach will be held to a higher standard, that they'll be held accountable because your words are powerful. And those who make their living by using their words have more opportunity to be judged than those who don't make their living by using their words. And so in a church, there's no position of greater strictness of being judged than this one right here. The person who's standing up here needs to be able to stand up here with fear and trembling, knowing that they will stand before the Lord to give an account, not just for what they did, but what they said and how they said it. Because those things matter. Teachers use words to communicate ideas, and ideas have the ability to build others up or to lead them astray. Jesus puts it like this in, in Luke chapter 12. He says, everyone to whom much was given of much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. This is what I call the, the Tobey Maguire verse of the, of the Bible. You just have to go with me there for a second, okay? Tobey Maguire, he was in Spider-Man 1, where Uncle Ben said, with great power comes great... Wow, everybody knows that one. He's just quoting this idea from Jesus, though. We all implicitly understand this, that teachers should be judged with greater strictness, that teachers should not be able to say just whatever they want to say, and that there's a reason by that. It's because when we stand up here, we're opening the Word of God and saying, Thus saith the Lord. That cannot be taken flippantly. We have to be careful with the Word of God because the Word of God, James chapter 1, saves us. That the implanted Word of God changes our hearts and our lives. Someone who claims to teach God's Word must do it with humility and reverence and fear. There was a podcast that came out last year. Many of you might be familiar with this. The Rise and Fall, Marcel, a few of you uh, have listened to it. And it chronicled in like 12 episodes or something, it was a lot of episodes, uh, the rise and fall of a church in Seattle called Mars Hill Church, who was led by a man named Mark Driscoll. 
And there were many great things that happened in that church. The gospel was certainly proclaimed in that church. Many people became Christians in that church. But at the same time, this man, Mark Driscoll, was responsible for a great amount of spiritual abuse and manipulation. By using his words, he destroyed people's lives sometimes. The worst part of the, of, the, of the podcast for me was the end. Because in the end, they had finally, this, this is a man who had isolated himself from others, who was not held accountable for what he had to say. And they had finally gotten to the point to where they were finally, after years and years of spiritual abuse and poor teaching, they were going to hold him accountable for what he had to say. They were going to fire him or make it public of all the different things that he had done to bother people, to, to affect people, to... Uh, hurt people. And right at the end, instead, he gets up and he says, there's a small group of people that want harm for me, so I'm going to resign and I'm going to leave. And he resigned and he left, and within six months he was planting another church. And it, the injustice of it all just felt so terrible to me. As I listened to the podcast, I heard in nine episodes how this man had ruined so many people's lives, how it was all very terrible, the things that he was teaching. And then he doesn't even get the justice that he deserves at the end. And that implicitly feels bad to me. And I wanted the justice. I wanted him to be exposed, to be revealed for what he was, and to get what he deserves. I know that some of you have also been harmed by leaders who have used their words in an abusive, manipulative, selfish kind of way. I know that some of us might have been effect, affected by prosperity teachers who have taught a false gospel that says, if you believe in what I say, if you give me money, God will bless you with more. When the gospel is not about money, ever. The gospel is about the good news of Christ. I know that many of us have been manipulated and changed and hurt by Christian leaders, and we demand justice. We need justice. And so what do you do to expose these leaders and hold them accountable? Well, yet you work toward those things. You want these things to come into the light. But at the end of the day, here's what our brother James says. When a leader is abusing his authority like that, our brother says, yes, expose them. That, I think that that's proper. But at the end of the day don't sweat it. Why? Because they will be held to a higher standard. They will be judged more strictly. Teachers will be judged with a greater strictness. And so at the end of the day, it's not up to us to judge them. That's what God says. He says, I will judge them to a greater standard, but you don't have to sweat it because you are not the judge, I am. And so we trust God with that. We trust that he will do the right thing. Now, if you've been here for a little while, you might say, wait a second, Fletcher. You preach this every week. You preach, you're not judged based upon what you do, but what you believe and who you believe in. And so if you're a Christian, you're not judged based upon your own moral standing, but upon Christ's moral standing. And I would say, thank you for listening. I'm so glad you're finally, it's finally getting through to you that the gospel is not about what you do. And so with this, though, it's saying that they will be judged to a higher standard. What does that mean? Well, I think in the first place that a teacher who does not know the true understanding of the gospel, a teacher who does not embrace the message of Christ 
as a life-saving and justifying act for themselves, will stand subject to the justice of God, will stand before the throne of God without an advocate. There will be, not be someone pleading his case. He will just be responsible, or she will just be responsible by themselves. There will be no mercy, and they will get the justice that is, they deserve. But on the other side of things, if they are a true follower of Christ, and may they be, may God have mercy on them, they will receive mercy, but there still is an evaluation. The Scriptures teach us this, that what you do, though you will not be judged upon it, you'll still be saved. This is uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, you'll still be saved. But though you will be evaluated. And so teachers will always be evaluated by God, regardless of what they do. Words are so powerful here in this passage that James, he doesn't give us one illustration. That would be, that would be good. Usually the Bible only gives you one illustration. He doesn't just give us two illustrations. James doesn't give us three illustrations. He gives us four illustrations for how powerful words are. He wants us to get this. The first illustration he says is the tongue is a bridle. The bridle is a small piece of equipment that you put into a horse's mouth so that you can guide a horse. A horse generally weighs about 700 pounds. The bridle weighs about two pounds. And with a bridle, you can guide a horse. Great power comes in this small tool. He also says that the tongue is like a rudder. A rudder is only about 2% the size of a whole ship, yet it guides the ship and steers it where it will go. The tongue is a spark. Every great fire is started at a gender review, I mean, a spark. The tongue is an untamed beast. James says that every creature can be tamed, but not the tongue. So words are powerful, but why are they so powerful? I want us to think deeper on this. I don't want us to just think about the fact that they are powerful. I want you to understand why that they're so powerful. And so why are tongues so powerful? Two reasons. First, they reflect God. And second, they reveal your heart. First, they reflect God. Our God is a God who speaks. And his words have power. When the scriptures record God creating the universe, this is not something that we think about often, but how does he create the universe? But he speaks it into existence. His words, they have power. When the scriptures talk about how you become a Christian, it is God speaking to you and rescuing you from the dominion of darkness and bringing you into the kingdom of light. I love the way that C.S. Lewis imagined the creation of the world in the Narnia book, The Magician's Nephew, when the great lion Aslan, he stands and he sings it into existence. And the children see the beautiful universe of C.S. Lewis created. And there's a way that when we use our words to create universes, to tell stories, that we are reflecting something amazing about who God is. In fact, that is one of the primary ways that we are made in God's image. We alone, of all of God's creation, can use our words to create. And when you create a story, or when you get lost in a story, or in a universe that someone has created, whether that be one that you're reading, or watching, or you're just having a conversation with someone, and you get lost into the story that they're telling you, you're tapping into, you're touching something divine. 
something amazing. This person is reflecting the power of God and their ability to use their words to create. James says, with, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Every good story is just a reflection of God creating the world with his words. And so our words reflect God. Think about the power of that, that your words reflect God. Parents, your words reflect God. When you speak to your children, they're learning about how God speaks. There's nothing that a child wants more than to hear from their father, well done, my child. I am well pleased in you. And when we deprive our children of that, we deprive them of what it means to have a father that reflects the love of the father, the great father. That's why so many of us have these daddy wounds and we want our father's love. And God can heal that, but parents, let me give you an encouragement to speak to your children in a way that matters. Teach them about God through words of affirmation and love, because that's what we need to hear from our Father in heaven. Yes, you need to have discipline with your children and hold them to accountable for their actions, to teach them the ways to walk, or they'll walk in foolishness. But also, you need to do that in the context of a fully affirming and loving relationship, where your words reflect the words of God to them. You cannot be perfect. You're going to need some grace from the Lord. We're going to learn about that in just a moment. But your words, they have power and influence. How many of us are in therapy today due to the words or the lack of words from our own parents? And so let's break those cycles and care for our children with affirmation and love. Your words reflect the Lord, but your words also reveal your heart. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 15, 18, he says this, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. What comes out of the, heart proce- what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. There is a drainage pipe from your heart that leads to your mouth. And what goes into your heart is going to come out of your mouth. The things that you love, you are going to talk about. And when you fill yourself on the world and the way that the world looks, there's, without filling yourself with the word of the Lord, there's no way that these things can't come out of your mouth. When you're setting your eyes and heart on the world, grumbling will exit your mouth. When you're setting your heart and your life and your loves on the world, cynicism will come out of your mouth, complaining, bitterness, harshness, resentment. These things will come out of your mouth because the world is disappointing. It's broken. It's not the way it should be. And when you love the things of this world more than you love Christ, or you don't have the love of Christ helping you to interpret the brokenness of this world, the words of your mouth will be like the end of a, of a sewage pipe and not just a drainage pipe. There's this children's album that we love in our house. It's called Rain for Roots. 
and I'm not going to sing the song, but some of your kids might know it. They have this silly song that kids love, that my kids love at least, and it goes, apples don't grow on pear trees, apples don't grow on pear trees. You, yeah, me too. Um, apples don't grow on pear trees. No apples there, it only grows pears. Bananas don't grow on plum trees. Bananas don't grow on plum trees. Bananas don't grow on plum trees. No nanas come, they only grow plums. But then the song gets all deep. And the first time I heard this, this will strike no one as a surprise if you're a regular here, I started crying. And um, it, it said, your heart is where the words of your mouth grow. Your mouth is where the thoughts of your heart go. Jesus, change our hearts to bear, to bear good fruit. That's right. Yeah, we could just have the kids choir up here singing that song. Um, friends, it, it requires a heart change to train your tongue. You can't just look at the words that you say and say, oh, I really shouldn't say that and beat yourself up about that. Because the reality is, is that your tongue is just a reflection of the things that your heart is loving. And if you love the things of this world, the words of this world will come out of your tongue. If you fill yourself with cable news, you're gonna start sounding like a cable news anchor. Nobody wants that, all right? If you want your words to reflect God, you'll have to look at the loves of your heart. Which is the last point, how you can train your tongue. I think that first, before we talk about training our tongue, what we need to look at are, are James's words that no one can actually control their tongue. You actually cannot have full control of your tongue. You cannot tame your tongue. No one can tame the tongue. You're going to say things that you regret. Verse 2, he says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anybody does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. So what he's actually saying is, you can't do this. The only one who's ever done this is the perfect man, Christ. Which, when I look at Christ and the way that Christ used his tongue, here's what always stands out to me. He never says what I expect, and he never speaks when I expect him to. There are many times when Christ just responds with silence. And there are many times when he responds with compassion when I don't expect him to. He's a beautiful savior. When you read, this, when you read the gospels, look at how Christ uses his tongue. It's really powerful. Verse 7 in James chapter 3, he says, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You cannot tame your tongue. Friends, you're going to fail at this. And that's why we need grace for failures like us. That Christ's righteousness does cover you. If you trust in him, he can change the words of your tongue slowly. But more than that, he will not judge you based upon just what you have to say, but what Christ has to say, and his righteousness will cover over you. And so as we go through these practical steps of how to train your tongue, not taming it completely, but training it, I want you to remember those things. First, two practical steps of training your tongue. First, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. 
the scriptures teach us to put our eyes on things above, not on earthly things. It teaches us to gaze at heavenly things while we glance at the earth. So I just want you to think about where your gaze is. Is your gaze on the things of the world, and do you glance every once in a while up at Christ? Or is your gaze on heavenly things while you glance at the world? And that is what abiding in Christ means. Jesus teaches in John 15, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Allow the words and promises of Christ to fill your heart. Far too often, we abide in the world and we visit Christ. We find our home in the world and we vacation in the heavenly things. It should not be so. Let us abide in Christ and allow his words to fill our hearts. When his love fills your heart, his love fills your mouth. You see, you can't actually tame your tongue. You have no control of your tongue because the tongue is just the, su- is just the drain for your heart. And so if you want your tongue to reflect a better way of life, your heart has to love a better way of life, which means that you need to expose yourself to the words of God regularly and abide with Christ and allow his love to fill your heart so that his love can fill your mouth. Friends, set your eyes and hearts on things above. Return to the love of Christ over and over and over again. You can never get enough of that to experience and be reminded of his tenderness and his kindness, his compassion and his grace. Because if you do not do that, you will be controlled by the world with its judgmentalism, its harshness, its lack of tenderness. But when you experience the loving kindness of Christ over and over and over again, it reminds you and it shapes your heart and your tongue. And it allows you to reflect Him. (laughs) The second and last point is to take off the old man and to put on the nude man. Our mouths reflect the divided nature of our souls. That's what James teaches us in in verse 10. He says this, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And this is actually a consistent theme throughout the book of James. He says in the very first chapter that one of the things that he's addressing is a double-mindedness, a dipsychos, we, we said is the Greek word, and it's actually a word that he made up, and it's a word to reflect a dissociative identity disorder of the soul, that our souls are divided, and that we have kind of two ways of being. One way is of the world, and one way is of God. And so we live this double-minded life 
And the, actually, what it says in the beginning is that the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And then when we get here in James chapter 3, he says that the tongue is a restless evil. I don't know why they translate it that restless, because it doesn't do us any favors, because it's the exact same word that was translated unstable in chapter 1. And so he's addressing this idea that our souls are divided. And what he's actually telling us to do is after you abide in Christ, what you actually have to do, and it is work, church, it is work. This doesn't come easily or naturally to any of us. We have to take off the old self and to put on the new self. We cannot live with this double-mindedness. We have to live into our identity in Christ. And so when we feel temptation, we ask the Lord, may you help me with this temptation, but may I put my hope in you, and I'm going to walk the other way. I'm going to put off the old self. I'm going to hold my tongue. I want to give this person a verbal lashing. I want to tell them how it really is. Do you have that same disorder as me of like you are driving in the car or you talk with someone and you say, I wish I could have said this to them. I wish I could have told them how it really is and make them feel the way that they deserve to feel. James teaches us that that's a deed of darkness and that our words need to be full of grace as his words are full of grace. Listen to Colossians 3 where our our brother Paul tells us how to take off the old self and put on the new self. He says, to put to death, therefore, was earthly in you. And then he says, put these things away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now, when he talks about putting off the old self, how many of those things have to do with the things that you say? He said, put these things off with his old self, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Almost all of those are like what you use your tongue with. And then he says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so we put on the new self and we follow after him. Church, let's put on that new self with the new words that God has given us. Let's put that self on. Let's not use our words to tear anyone down. Let's use our words to build each other up. Let's put on the, the, the words of Christ to bless and not to curse. Let's work to build one another up. I have one simple point of application as we end here, and it's, it's this. I want you to try this for the next week, seven days. I think that if we do this as a church for the next seven days, that we could be a different church when we walk back in here next Sunday. And this is the application. Every day this week, Find a way to use your words to bless someone. Even someone that you might not particularly like, and that's fine. It will be a good training exercise for your heart. But find a way to not superficially, you know, if all you can do is superficial, so be it. uh, You know, like, hey, nice shoes, whatever. That's a blessing in its own way. Find a way to intentionally bless someone. And I think as we look for those ways, what we're actually doing as we train our tongue to speak righteousness. Our tongue is like a a bridle for our body. And as we train our tongue to bless others, we actually will become people who live in that blessing. We actually will become people who start to think the way that Christ thinks. 
And so church, find a way to bless someone, ideally someone else from this congregation, every day for the next seven days. That's my challenge. And we'll come in here next week being people that have been blessed seven times over. Because you don't just get the blessing when you receive that, but it's a blessing to give that. On the night that he was betrayed, Christ was ready to endure the curse of God on our behalf, and he chose to bless us. And he gave us a sacred meal that reminds us of what he's done for us. He said, this is my body broken for you as he tore a piece of bread apart to serve to his disciples. And he served a cup and he said, this is, the, the, this is the, my blood shed for you, the cup of the new covenant. Take this in remembrance of me. So let's stand and pray as we respond to God with this next song by coming to the table. Father, as we um, meditate on these words that come from you, we pray that you will be shaping our hearts to follow after you, that we'll abide with you, that this world will not shape who we are, but that you will shape who we are, and that we will use our words to bless others, that you'll create in us not a cynicism, but a deep appreciation for the way that you work behind all things. And so, God, we, we pray that we'll hear from you, and as we respond to you now, that we'll be treasuring the words of Christ and the deep acceptance and love and kindness that we have with him more and more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.